Well, good morning, church. Hey, I was standing in the back of the room, right, and I'm singing with y'all, and I'm praising, and all of a sudden, this thing came over me, and I thought to myself, I must be standing at a Gaither concert, because y'all, y'all sing that song like you mean it, amen? How great thou art. Just what a blessing to be in worship this morning, and thank you for gathering with us today on the Lord's Day as we celebrate. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, find your place in verse 17, and as we're working through the Corinthian letters, we're looking at what was Paul talking about. Why was he edifying and and uplifting and encouraging and rebuking and correcting and all these things that he was doing to this church that he was responsible for planting? He came to this church, he brought the gospel good news, and I would argue if they could sing a song today, they'd be singing, How Great Thou Art for the Salvation that the Corinthians found in Christ Jesus. But like often in our journey of life, sometimes we've got to make some course corrections And what we see happening in this 11th chapter in verse 17 through 34 is Paul's giving them some instructions of things that they didn't quite have right that were going on. I've got an image of something that Baptists are often known for. Uh, If you'll take a look at the screen, I hope you ate breakfast because if not, uh, you're going to be pretty hungry by the time we get done with this. I'm reminded of the the, the joke that goes, you know, the, the teacher had show and tell one day and told all the students, hey, on Friday when you come... Bring something that you practice as part of your faith and share that with the class. And the little pagan boy that was lost brought the golden calf and he said, this is how we worship. And the the follower of Islam brought a rug and sat down and he began to pray on it and said, this is how we worship. And you know what the Baptist brought? A casserole dish, right? Because that's how we, we like to worship. We love to fellowship and we love to eat and we love to partake. And I would argue that you're going to see through the beginning of our text that there is some great biblical truth and this element of fellowship through meals. Matter of fact, while you're looking at that image, uh, I want you to listen to what we see in the very beginning of the Old Testament, how important food was in the life of God's creation. In Genesis, God provided in the Garden of Eden food appropriate to nourish and enrich the lives of Adam and Eve. It was food that nourished them, and by their own appetite, they allowed themselves to be led astray and fell into temptation by the cravings to satisfy their own desires as opposed to obeying the commands of God, and they ate from the forbidden fruit. Now take a look at that food picture one more time. I'm not reading the scripture yet. Y'all keep getting hungry, right? Keep looking at all that. After the great flood, God decreed that everything would be food for Noah and his family. You can find that in Genesis chapter 9. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as you, as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. They began to eat all of that. After the flood, we've come to Genesis in chapter 14. And after after Abram goes out and has a great battle, here's what the scripture tells us about this fellowship through food and feasting that goes on. In Genesis 14, he says, After his return from the defeat of Shadorlamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. And Machizeldek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. God himself, that's who we understand Machizeldek to be, brought out food and wine and began to partake in fellowship with food with Abram. In Genesis 18, when the Lord and his two angels appear to Abraham at this time, before they destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham recognizes who they are and what's he do? He immediately turns to Sarah and tells them to go prepare, prepare a meal so that we can feed and feast together because I recognize the angels of the Lord and the Lord himself. Esau would later on in Genesis chapter 25, he would sell his own birthright for a bowl of red porridge. In Genesis chapter 40, we know the man by the name of Joseph who would go through all kinds of calamity and eventually lead the Israelites out of captivity, out of bondage into Pharaoh's land. And Joseph himself would be able to provide for Pharaoh during a seven-year famine where Joseph would be responsible for providing the food and the grain and all the nourishment that not only Israel, but also Egypt would need to survive. In the Exodus, God would use food as he led the people out of captivity by the hands of Moses. Food would become a concern for the nation of Israel. God would institute the Passover meal to signify his protection from death and prescribing how the meal would be eaten with the greatest of detail to be followed precisely prior to Israel's release from the bondage. This same Passover meal would become complete For all, as we see in this passage of Scripture that Paul writes to the Corinthians about what Christ would do for us to provide not only the blood and the body that was broken, but to be the sacrificial lamb that would be offered for the world. From King Saul to King David to King Solomon, great feasts have always marked a significant aspect 
of the life of God's creation. And I would argue, as we'll see today, this feast that we celebrate in, in remembrance of Christ marks a feast that will be to come, as Jesus shared with us the story of the great wedding banquet, the great sup- marriage supper of the Lamb, when the body of Christ is restored to God and there is a celebration, when Christ the groom meets his bride finally and we're restored into God's presence as the kingdom of God. In Revelation 22, you can read about what that life would be like as we have that new life with our Savior. So what do I want to share with you today? Three things as we're going to look through the scriptures together. But let's go to chapter 11, verse 17. We'll read through verse 34 quickly, and then we'll go back and we'll examine what does this text say, not only to the Corinthians, but how do we apply it in our life today? So if you're there, chapter 11, verse 17, say amen. Amen. Picking up in, in our chapters here, let's read together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you came together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not, he goes on to say. Picking up in verse 23, he continues. He says the following, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also he took a cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that, there may not be con- so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other th- the other things, I will give directions when I come." Join me in praying over the reading of God's Word. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege of your Scripture. We thank you for the privilege for those that are in Christ Jesus to have the mind of Christ, knowing fully that the priesthood of the believer, the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability to understand and to comprehend your Scriptures. Father, we thank you for this instruction, and we pray now that the Holy Spirit would have his way in this service. Help us to be mindful of these things that you've instituted, but also mindful of why Paul is addressing the Corinthian church and what that means for us today. Father, we seek your presence. We thank you and we praise you for the salvation that comes by no other name but the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we get through, I know that was a lengthy part of text, but as we read through that, we need to go back and examine just a little bit three specific areas that we're going to see in our text. We're going to see, number one, there's an address for the error of the fellowship of what's going on. This koinonia in Corinth, there's something different now as all of Rome influence is now merging in this epicenter of of Corinth, this great city during this time frame, and there's an error going on amongst the church in their fellowship with one another. There's going to be an address to the expectation of Christ's return. We call that the eschatology and what we understand about Christ coming back. And then lastly, we will see an address of the examination that we as Christians are required to do of our own walk with him before we partake in the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to share an image with you. I don't know if any of you have watched the movie, The Titanic. I think it's coming up, right? I thought, man, how can I weave this in there, right? Awesome movie in some aspects. But in one of the scenes of this movie, young Jack, the character in the movie, saves this young lady sitting across from him at the table, and she's perplexed in life. I would call she is absolutely lost. 
thinking that death would be better than to marry the guy sitting to her right because she knows it's a fixed marriage. She doesn't love the guy, and she's at her wit's end, doesn't know what to do, and Jack comes in and saves the day and keeps her from falling off, and the great love story begins. But it was interesting at this movie. See, Jack came from not much background. He wasn't of money. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't have any stature. He wasn't a businessman. Matter of fact, they begin to joke about how much money he makes and what he does for a living. But it's interesting when he's invited to this dinner because he saved this other man's bride. He goes into the room and you could tell in the atmosphere in that room that there was something out of place. The way he was treated by everybody else at the table, there was something going on that just wasn't right. It was almost like the tension was so thick at the dinner that you could cut it with a knife. You ever been in a situation like that? I share that image with you because sometimes we know what that feels like, to feel out of place in a room of other people. But even though he should have been there, you know, it's that way in the church for many sometimes, that there are those that come from all walks of life, all different classes, all socioeconomic background, all demographics. And sometimes when they walk into the church, they don't feel as though they belong. And even worse, there are some that are part of that group that sit around the table, if you will, metaphorically, looking at others downwardly like you don't belong here. Why are you here amongst us? This isn't a place for you. Folks, that's exactly what was happening in the beginning verses of this text. As the Corinthian church was doing much like this image, they were gathering around this table, but the lower class Christians in Corinth, the working class folks, the blue collar folks, they weren't allowed to partake in the same table the same way as perhaps some of the officials in more upper class of Corinth would have been allowed. Let's go back to our text for a moment, and let's look at this error in fellowship that was going on. Notice he tells us in the beginning, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. See, Paul had just written to them at the beginning of chapter 11, commending them for remembering him in everything, for keeping the traditions of the church. He praises them for those things, but now he transitions to setting right the error of their fellowship. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better but for worse. Boy, isn't that difficult. You ever leave a church feeling like you didn't belong, feeling like you weren't welcome there, feeling like they don't understand me, I'm not accepted amongst that group? Now, there's sometimes that's our own issue, right? We come in with our own presuppositions and our own feelings of self-worth and self-value being low and low self-esteem, and we just feel like we don't fit in. But in reality, did you know in God's economy, we are all equal at the foot of the cross? Galatians 3.28 makes it clear that whether you're a slave or free, a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, we are all equal in Christ Jesus. When we come into God's house, we all have equal sitting and an equal footing before the cross of Christ. How do I know that? Because Scripture is clear that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need the salvation that only Christ offers. Notice in verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church... Now, that's an interesting word. We've done some studies on that before. But basically what Paul is saying, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, when we gather together as the assembly, that's what that word ecclesia means. It was later transitioned in the German language to the kirche. That's where we get our English word church from. When the church gathers, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, there's something that's supposed to be different about our fellowship than that of the pagan world, that of the Roman world, that of even the Corinthian lifestyle. There's something unique about when the body of Christ assembles. You know, you can be a member of the body of Christ, but if you're not in fellowship with the church, you're an orphan. Think about that for a minute. God designed the community of the body of Christ to work together, hands and feet, eyes and nose. Chapter 12, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit and how God created His ecclesia, His curse, His church, if you will. And when we come together, there's for a purpose of edification There's a purpose for what we are doing. Verses 18 will continue. He says, or excuse me, in verse 19, he says, For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think Paul's being a little facetious here. When you come together, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. See, what was going on here, there was an absolute error in the understanding of what we as the church are called to do when we gather together. 
too often we don't understand what was taking place. Let me give you a little background and historical context. Go to error in fellowship, point number one, and I want to share with you what was happening in Corinth. Number one, there was an error in the edification. You see, there were a mixed society in Corinth of blue-collar workers, of white-collar workers, of low hourly wage earners to those on salary in the upper government of Corinth. There was a wide diversity of those who had come to Christ through the good news of Jesus, but yet there was a different socioeconomic dynamic happening, which was radically different than the Roman world. You see, the peasant, matter of fact, did you know even in the Colosseums, the peasants, those with the cheapest seats, you know where they had to sit? They were in the balcony seat all the way to the top. Some historians say that in the Colosseum where the peasants would sit, their seat was about 17 inches wide. To give you a perspective, the center aircraft seat on most airlines today is 19 inches wide. That's where the peasants would seat. They got the cheap seats. You ever go to a football game and you buy a cheap ticket? You have to bring your binoculars right, to see the 50-yard line because you're way up in the sky. You brought your oxygen tank and you put your mask on while you're watching the game. Right? That's the seats I'm talking about. You see, that was part of Roman life. The peasant, the lower class, they had to sit way back there when the upper class got to sit up front. Now, when you go your whole life living that way, you can imagine when you come into the koinonia, the fellowship of the church, something's different socioeconomically, right? Because I've said already, we're all equal according to Christ. We're all equal according to Scripture. There's no one over the other. Yes, there's different positions, different gifting. Some teach, some have mercy, some have different functions, but we're all equal in Christ. You can imagine Corinth wasn't treating each other as though they were equal. They were still living like they were Romans. They were still living like Corinthians would live and kept that social economic difference. There was an error, number one, there was an error in edification. Paul would write to the Roman church, in Romans 14, 19, he says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding for everyone. Error in edification. Let me define edification for you. The word edification literally means the building up. It is an approximate encouragement and is for consolation. And with edification, it focuses on the goal as maturity into the full measure of Christ. Edification is the responsibility of various church leaders, according to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And it's the legitimate context for which those leaders in the church exercise their authority. I could sit up here and give you a great TED talk. That's what the world expects. But the difference is we read scripture and thus saith the Lord, there's a different purpose for edification for the church than what we see in the secular community. You see, the Corinthians were trying to mix how they did life socially in Corinth. And then they were bringing that into the church and says, this is not good, says Paul. Shall I commend you in this? Absolutely not. When you come together, it's for the worse, not for the better. Equality. There was an error in their edification. All elements of Christian worship should contribute to edification. Prophecy and instruction are important. Edification and all talk, however, it involves demonstrating love and the consideration for those who are weaker in the flesh. You see, the Corinthian church wasn't doing that. Here's the way it would play out. Now, their churches were not like our churches today. They would often gather in the home of someone who may have had a large enough room in their home for the church to meet. They might have had a table in that home, and if that person who owned the home was like Lydia, a dealer in purple linen, as we saw in one of Paul's letters, she might have had the wealth and the means to be able to invite the church into her home. Well, here in Corinth, the same thing was going on, but here's the difference. Like many of us, we have hours that we work, don't we? You have to be at work at 6 o'clock in the morning or at 7 o'clock in the morning, and you're required to stay there until a certain period of time. That's how many of us live our lives. But there were others who owned the company. Now, is there a difference between the men who own the company and the women who own the company and what they do compared to what their workers are required to do? The world says absolutely, right? The boss shows up whenever he gets there. Some bosses, not all right? They have the flexibility to prioritize their schedule, and they can go where they want to. You know the same thing was happening in Corinth, and that's why Paul's writing to this. He's saying that those of you that were in the upper class, you have control of your schedules, so you're going to the house of your friend to fellowship, and you're just con consuming all of the good food before your brothers who are having to work and don't control their schedules are coming. You're eating everything, you're devouring it all, and the others in the church, when they're finally off of work and they can come to fellowship, they got nothing left. They get scraps. He says it shouldn't be that way. 
You elite, you that know better, you that are living in the world, you that are used to doing those things the way the Corinths would do it, like the Romans would do it, you ought not be doing it that way. You should wait for everyone to come together. I remember when I was a, a trainer at Officer Candidate School, we would have companies of, of men and women training to be commissioned officers, and when they would get ready to graduate, the battalion commander, the colonel at the time, would invite every one of the platoons to come to his house. And I remember that we would have specific time slots, because you could imagine a couple hundred folks trying to come through your home would be different, difficult. So each group had their own time slot. And I remember being responsible for having to set up before the first group and then set up for the second group, and the other guys would come in behind me. But we always made sure that there was an equal amount of food for every group, so the last group didn't get shortchanged. Nobody wants to be in the last group, right? Because the crab legs were at the first one. You get Vienna sausages at the last group, right? Yeah, I hear you. Amen. I got a testimony, right? That's just the way it worked out. So we wanted to make sure there was a distribution Now imagine in Corinth, Paul is addressing this issue that their edification for the body was taking place much like that. The first group was eating crab legs, the last group was getting Vienna sausages. Well, really, they're probably just getting the cracker, okay? That shouldn't be the way we do things as a church. Now our context today has changed dramatically, hasn't it? The Corinthians were having an entire meal and feasting together, much like Jesus was doing when he instituted the Passover with his disciples. And we're going to look at that verse in a moment as Paul explains it to us. But secondly, there was not only an error in edification, but there was also an error amongst those who were gathered. And I've talked a little bit about this issue. But the error of the church, the assembly, was pre- they were specifically to gather for two prime reasons. To affirm the continuity with Israel through the use of that term, the, the body of Christ, the ecclesia, and to allow any suspicion of political circles, Christians were called to be an an orderly group, not a disorderly group, and our allegiance was not to Rome, not to the emperor, but to Christ Almighty. Now, together with the Jew and the Gentile, we were working and fellowshipping together for Christ. The Lord's Supper, like the Passover meal on which it was based, should have served as an experience that strengthened the unity of the body of Christ. I've said often, when we partake in the elements of the Lord's Supper, you know that there is no time, if we do it biblically, There is no time in the life of the church that when the church walks out the doors and goes back into the world, there is no time that the church is more holy and more righteous and more edified than when we've partaken in the communion of the Lord's Supper and now we go into the world to proclaim the gospel. There's no greater time in the life of the church. The very unity that wasn't happening in Corinth because they weren't doing it with an understanding. There was an error when they would gather together In our our context, we solemnly remember and respect the reverence of this this night that Jesus was betrayed when he instituted the bread that was broken, the body that was broken, and the blood that was shed for the salvation of the world. But lastly, we see that there was an error in their irony. The very irony of social class distinction when they were gathered together no longer exists in Christ. Christ. The irony here is they were separating themselves amongst their own groups, amongst their own factions, because there were differences. But yet now are we not all the same in Christ? There is evidence of fruit, not evidence of fiction, I would say, that should have been taking place amongst the Corinthian church, much like us. The very nature of some partaking and others being left out is ironic in the sense that all who partake in the covenant are united as one and are no longer divided. Did you know that Christ made us equal co-heirs in the kingdom of God together as his children? You know God has no grandchildren, by the way? Did you know that? God has no grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you do not belong to him. The scripture is very clear. If I confess with my mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that he was raised from the dead, then I will be saved. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus reminds us that I came to seek and save that which is lost? You see, this communion that the Corinthians were participating in was to help all of those who would hear the good news of Christ come into an equal relationship with God the Father, the Heavenly Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in our life. Christians who understood the true nature of the Lord's Supper, we should be expected to manifest a commitment to laying their lives down, especially for the sake of the poorer and the more fragile members of our church. We are all equal. 
Paul's addressing this error in fellowship. Let me share with you an image. You may have not seen how the Lord's Supper probably would have been taking place in its cultural context, but for the sake of edification, when you look at that image, when Jesus is gathered in the upper room, as we're going to see in the Scriptures, as Paul delivers to us that which was given to him as he makes that comment, this is probably what the, the scene would have looked like. Notice there's no fine china on the table. Notice there's no golden goblets on the table, as often per- Uh, depicted in some pictures that you may see. Their plates were made out of earthenware. We don't know of any utensils being there, but they might have had a knife. That would have been traditional in that time frame. Very meager circumstances. Notice they're reclining on the floors. The scriptures talk to us about that. They lean up against one another for support. What a picture of the body of Christ leaning against each other so that, as Bubba would say, we won't have to sleep in the mud, right? Y'all seen Forrest Gump, right? That's the body of Christ. We support one another. Here's what it probably would have looked like is all the disciples and even the one who would betray Jesus is gathered around the table fixing to partake in this institution of this new covenant that Jesus gives to us. Let's turn our attention to the scripture in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Folks, there's an expectation of Christ's return for the church. We call it the study or the eschatology, the the study of Christ's return and what that means for for you and I. So point number two, I would share with you, Paul's letting us know that there's an expectation for us. There's things that we should be expecting to go on in the life of the body of Christ when we do this, as our table says, of communion in front of you. You ever wonder when you come into a church and you don't know why, why does it say, do this in remembrance of me everywhere? Because it's something that God has given us. We call it an ordinance of the church. We believe in the New Testament scriptures that there are two ordinances. One is baptism, and then the other is the Lord's Supper that God specifically gave us to participate in and to partake. So what should we expect? Number one, I want you to see that there should be an expectation of betrayal. Hmm. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Look in the very beginning, verse 23. For I received from you the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed. Aren't we grateful that we serve a God that looks through our sin and still offered salvation, that whosoever will come to him would be saved? You see, the Lord Jesus on this night when he was around that table that I showed you that image of, you know who was sitting right across from him? Judas Iscariot. Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, was partaking in the Lord's Supper along with the other 11 disciples, who, by the way, they would all run and flee too. Right? When the shepherd is stricken, the sheep scatter and go away. And they all did that. They all left Jesus high and dry. You see, Jesus knew that despite our own betrayal, our own desire like Adam and Eve to feast on our own lusts and our own wants and to forbid the word of God and to not obey the commands that God gave to Adam and Eve. Adam and woman, we are the same way that we often want to seek the desires of our own flesh. What tastes good, what feels good, what seems good, what we like, what we want. Our own preferences often keep us from loving God the way we should. And in that supper, God knew that our own betrayal of him, even though we would betray him, he would still be willing to offer up his life. Romans 5 8 says it this way that God demonstrated his love for us, that yet while I was sinning in the present tense, Christ died for me. While Judas was in his mind thinking about how he was going to betray Christ, you know what God did? God incarnate, God in flesh, Emmanuel that dwelt amongst us. He handed the cup across the table to Judas. Now imagine making eye contact with the Savior. Knowing that what's been going through your mind in his omniscience, his omnipresence, and everything that he is, he knew what you were thinking. But yet Judas still partook 
in the cup, still took the bread, and still went out after that dinner and betrayed the Lord with 30 pieces of silver. How cheaply do we betray our Lord sometimes? But you know, despite of it, God loves us. Despite of you, despite me and my own sin, God still loves me. Did you know when Christ died for you on the cross, he died not only for the sin that led you to salvation, but he died for the sin that you would be living in in the weeks to come after that? And he died for the sin that you would commit 10 or 20 years after your salvation? That's the God that loved you enough to know that even when you, when you accepted the offer of salvation, when you were baptized in the symbology of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, that later on, after that mission trip and you came back, you were all excited because you led someone to Christ? After that wonderful Sunday school lesson, after that great VBS teaching, after all that you've been doing for the kingdom, you had that miserable failure in your ministry, wherever it may be. You know, God loved you even in that moment. He knew it was coming. And you know what? Just like Peter, when Peter, after he had betrayed the Messiah, you know, he throws his hands up in John chapter 20, and he turns to his fellow disciples, and you know what Peter does? He says, I'm going to go back to life the way I used to know it. I'm going to go back to doing the things that comfort me that I know to do. Peter literally says this in John chapter 20. I'm going fishing. He goes back to the life that he knew. But here's the Jesus that we know and that loves us. Guess who met Peter on the shoreline and restored him back to the ministry, even in his failures? You see, we serve a Savior that knew and that knows at some point in our walk with Christ we'll betray him. At some point, sin will creep in and we'll have to repent of it. And God will be right there just like he was with Peter to restore you back into your position as a child of God. You see, God never leaves us. It's always us that wander and astray. But notice, secondly, there's an expectation of the cost of salvation. Not only did he sit right there and give Judas, who would betray him, and all the disciples, for that matter, who would flee and not be there at his greatest moment, he then explains to them about this bread that symbolically would become truly, as Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. If anyone is hungers, you eat of the bread of life and I will satisfy you. You see, Jesus was making it known, the expectation of the crucifixion that would come in the ensuing hours when he would be betrayed by a mock trial. He would be convicted of crimes he didn't commit, and he would not open his mouth in his own defense. He would lead a man by the name of Pontius Pilate to ask Jesus the question, what is truth? Wouldn't that be relevant for our society today? Well, what's true for you may not be true for me. Jesus says, yeah, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father except by me. You see, on that night when he instituted what we will partake in at the end of our service, this little, this little wafer of unleavened bread that's in the bottom of your cup, that would be a reminder of what Jesus would do on Calvary as the stakes were driven through his wrists, hands, area, as he was held up and pinned to a cross, demonstrating his love for you and I, as his side would be pierced, the bread that would be broken for you and I to participate in salvation and be restored to God. The great expectation of the salvation that would come. David would write about this in Psalm 53, or excuse me, Isaiah would write about it in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, that his body would go through all that it did on Calvary's cross, that he would give up his life for the ransom for many. But thirdly, there's an expectation of a covenant to, to keep. Jesus' statement that the cup is the new covenant in my blood fuses together the language of Jeremiah 31, 31, this new covenant. It expounds upon the Exodus in Exodus 24, 8, that this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And the later text refers to the establishment of the covenant at Sinai, while the former, that in Exodus 24, consists of God's promise to establish a new covenant in the time of post-extelic restoration. By fusing the two texts together, Jesus interprets his impending death as a sacrifice that establishes the new covenant associated with the second exodus. Isn't it wonderful that we often say that Scripture is best interpreted by Scripture? That there is no circular reasoning, there is no error in the Scripture of God, that it is infallible 
that it tells the same story when you read it in Exodus that you see now as we read through the Corinthian letters. This great understanding that Jesus Christ himself, as John would write, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And that Passover meal that brought Israel out of the Exodus, preserved their firstborn children, caused great havoc upon Egypt, and the firstborn of all of Egypt, to include Pharaoh's children, would die, now comes to full fruition in Jesus Christ as he now gives it to us to remember what he has done for us. An expectation of betrayal, but his love never wavered. An expectation of the cost of salvation that his love was willing to do regardless of the great cost. The Garden of Gethsemane prayer, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And something like sweats, drops of blood, Jesus was in such agony. But he says, not my will, but yours. And then lastly, a covenant that he will keep. If we believe the word of God is inerrant, without error, and we believe God cannot sin, then we also know God cannot lie. And we've seen with the evidence of Scripture, what God said will be, will come to fruition. Amen? We should indeed have an expectation of Christ's return. But thirdly, notice the examination required in verses 27 through 34. Paul gives us an understanding of this. Why? Because we are different than the world. And we are to examine ourselves before we go into the presence of the Lord to remember this. You know, when the high priest under Israel in the Old Testament, before he would go in the day of Yom Kippur, the, the, the day of atonement, where he would make an atonement for the sins of all of Israel. But first, he would have to make an atonement for his own sin before he could be righteous and holy in order to go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God's Shekinah glory, where God would dwell in the, the tabernacle. And he would offer his own sacrifice. There was a reason they would put bells on the bottom of his of his garb, as his, his robe that he would wear, and they would tie a rope around his foot so that if his sacrifice wasn't done correctly, you know what would happen? He'd drop dead. And when they stopped hearing the bells move, they would grab that rope, fearful that if they entered the Holy of Holies, they too would die. And they would drag his dead body out by that rope. You see, under the New Testament, we have this reminder just how important when we, now the priesthood of the believer, endowed by the Holy Spirit, have the ability to communion with a holy God. Not because of what some priest or pastor does for you, but if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. The sanctuary in which God dwells is your very heart. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing that God himself would dwell not in a house made by human hands, but he would dwell in the very house he created in his own image, in you and I. You think there's something significant about us needing to be holy and pure when we commune with the fellowship? Let's look what Paul says about this. He says, picking up in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we'll talk more about what it means to be worthy in a minute, will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. That last sentence there, we don't know about what these other things were, but we know this. We know that Paul wrote about what was the most important thing he felt he needed to address in this letter before he got there. We don't know what other concerns the Corinthian letters had apparently written to Paul and saying, hey, Paul, we need, we need some answers to some things about how we do some stuff. Paul talks about it at the very end. He says, about those other things? No. But what's most important, I want you to understand right now, and he gave us these texts from verses 17 through 34 about the Lord's Supper. So how do we determine what Paul shares with us is an unworthy manner? There's an examination required of the saint, of the believer. So how do we look at this one? What is that examination? How do we do it in a, in a worthy manner? I think that's the next heading that might come up there. I'm going to give you a couple ways. How do we determine what is a worthy manner. 
Number one, it begins with a life that's examined. A life that's examined. Now, what do I mean by that? We're called to reflect and to discern where are we in our spiritual walk with Christ. First, to look at the own, our own sins. Do you know there's two types of sins that we find in the Bible? There are sins of omission, and there are sins of commission. Now, the commission one's pretty easy. That's what you do. The sins that we do that we know are contrary to God, that we come to an awareness are against God's scripture and teaching, those are sins of commission, right? And I don't need to list what they are. You already know what they are, don't you? Right? I heard a couple of amens out there, right? That's true. We should all be saying amen. We know what they are, don't we? The old adage, if you ever have to ask yourself, should I or should I not do this? The answer is probably no, because you already know in your heart, you're trying to talk yourself into it. But the Holy Spirit, if you're a child of God, is telling you, I don't think so right? You know better than that. We know that's not what we're supposed to do. Yeah, but just this one time, right? We begin to reason with ourselves. Well, it won't really hurt me too bad, you know. Jesus ate with sinners, right? We do that, don't we, in our Christian walk. We try to justify it. Paul says it begins, number one, with a life examined before we participate in the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. We are indeed called to be hagios, that Greek word for holy, holy, holy. Because the Lord God Almighty is holy. We are called to live our life that way. Did you know we have a holy reset button? Y'all know that? Y'all seen, y'all seen Toy's Life, right? Bug's Life, or whatever it is, with, with a little woody. You pull the string, boop. You know, we got one of those too for righteousness. It's called repentance. It's called the holy reset button. When we repent of our sin, when we're convicted of it, and we know that we, we have done something against God's word, we've done something that's breaking the fellowship. God Almighty, not our, not our relationship now. Hear me clearly. Once saved, always saved. If you're saved. Y'all catch that part? Once saved, always saved. If you're saved. And how do we know if you're saved? Because the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, that sanctuary we talked about, is going to lead you into such conviction that you can't continue to live in sin. As Brother Adrian Rogers once said, I can sin all I want to, but I don't want to. Christ has fixed my wanter. I no longer want it. Now, every now and then we do it, but we've got that holy reset button called repentance where we can reach out to our Heavenly Father who already knows that we were going to do it and is pleased when we come to Him and say, Lord, forgive me. You know what He does? He passes us on the back and says, I already forgave you on the cross because I already knew you were going to do it. Get up and walk in righteousness. Get up and walk as my child. I don't condemn you. That's the God we serve. Isn't it wonderful? So it begins with a life examined, but it also begins with discernment in our practices as they relate to Scripture. But not only Scripture, look at that last part. And the community of faith. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Did you know that when God saved you, He never intended you to live in isolation away from the body of Christ? I share this illustration every now and then. And I ask, how many of y'all can tell me, where's a polar bear made to live? Anybody know the way God created a polar bear? He created him to live in Florida, right? No. No, he gave him fur and thick fat and kind of like me, right? He kind of made him big and furry. Why? So he could survive the winter Arctic and the, the extreme temperatures, and he could jump in the ice water and it not bother him, right? He could be put on a Coca-Cola bottle, and we'd all want to drink it. God created a polar bear for an environment to live in that was just for him. But when you take the polar bear out of the Arctic and you take him out of the cold and you put him in the Everglades of Florida, what's going to happen to the polar bear? That joker's going to have heat stroke, right? Because the South, we don't play. It's like I walk out my front door and Satan just breathed on me and my shirt's wet with humidity and heat and stickiness, right? Same thing happens when the Christian is outside the environment that God designed him to live in that God designed her to live in. When we're not living in the community of faith, guess what? We're not in the ideal habitat in which God designed us to grow and to live to our fullest capability. Isn't it wonderful that he gives us the church, the scripture to guide us when we understand our relationship with the church? But thirdly, it begins with self-judgment. What do we mean by that? Well, judge not, lest thou shalt be judged, pastor. Right? We know that verse of scripture, don't we? Oh, I can't judge, preacher. You ought not be judging. Well, you call it what you want, but I'll tell you this. God made me a fruit inspector. And if your fruit's rotten, I'm going to call you out on it, right? Because flies gather on rotten fruit. You ever notice that? 
It does. You can look at it. You can tell right off the bat, there's some indicators that I don't want to eat that. I don't want that in my apple pie. I don't want that in my kibitz cobbler. We cull it out. You see, Paul is letting us know that when we begin with self-judgment, when we look at examine ourselves, as Jesus reminded us, take the plank out of our own eye before we look to take the speck out of our brother's eye. When we look at our own walk with Christ, that's where it begins. Because often the best form of Christianity is modeled in the life of a believer, and that's what others are going to see through our actions, the fruit that we put off. Some of our fruit gets a little overripe every now and then, right? Begins with self-judgment, an honest evaluation of our own actions and our own faithfulness to what we're called to do and called to be in the body of Christ. And lastly, it begins with conviction that leads to repentance. That's what Paul's explaining to us here before we partake in the Lord's Supper. Every Christian community needs to think very carefully about its worship practices and whether or not they're being carried out in a way that disadvantages or shows insensitivity to any of its members. Subgroups, we call them cliques within the church, need to be alert to whether or not the fellowship they enjoy to each other sends a message of exclusiveness and inconsistency with the message of the gospel. You know, when we come into church sometimes, we've got our groups, right? I've got my group that I like, that I live with, I went to high school with, went to college with, and now we're all sharing walkers together, right? You got that group, you know what I'm talking about. Y'all grew up together. But yet we don't let nobody else in to our group because they're not, they're not from here. They're not like us. They don't live here. They're outsiders. They're from a different group. I heard one member, one brother told me, I've seen Clannish, but brother, this church, who I've seen Clannish in this church, right? We got our little pocket here, a little pocket here. We, we do our thing all over the church, but we, we don't ever sit nowhere else. We're sitting with our people. Man, aren't we glad to be the body of Christ, equal by the foot of the cross, every single one of them, distinctly different but all the same in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be the body of Christ. So real quickly, let me give you three things in application, and then we'll partake in the Lord's Supper today. Number one, as you've heard me share over and over, we are one in Christ. The half-brother of Jesus, after his conversion, we can find, and we assume that in Acts chapter 1, we see him in the upper room praying. Here's what James says to the church as he gives us his, his great letter. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord. Jesus Christ, the glory of, to the Lord, the, the Lord of glory, excuse me. We're one in Christ, equal by the cross. Let there be no factions, let there be no divisions. I'd argue, let there be no clans amongst us. We are one in Christ. But number two, there must be an expectation of this eschatology of the Lord's return. We do this in remembrance, not as an act of finality of our faith, but rather of the expectation that the Lord we worship now without seeing will be the same Lord we stand before upon His faithful return as the bride as we partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then thirdly, the Christian life must be one lived out in practicum. What do you mean by practicum? What is that? It means it must be modeled. You ever take an exam for a skill set? And in that exam, the testing agent requires you to perform the task with your hands. That's called practicum. When you're taking a nursing exam and you've got to give an, an IV or you've got to give some kind of medical process, you've actually got to do it on the patient, right? Aren't you glad you're not the patient that day? But that's called the life in practicum. That's how we're called to live our life in Christ that we model it, we live it out, and we're able to do it. And once we've done it, that's what we do. We begin to teach others what that is so that they too can do it. This practicum of living out the Great Commission, living out our life as believers in Christ, can be greatly summarized in this marriage supper of the Lamb and of this great feast that's going to partake one day. Let me share with you a verse in Luke 13, and I'm only going to read the last part of it real quick. But Jesus makes it known. He says, strive to enter the narrow door. Verse 24. He says, for, I, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. And once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, let us in. Open to us. Then he will answer you 
I don't know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. We taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you have come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And he goes on to tell us in verse 29, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some of the last who will be first and some of the first who will be last. Folks, God is giving us an understanding that even when we partake in the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we do it and we're no different than Judas. We go through the motions. We know we're betraying the Lord by our actions, the way we're living our life. But there are others that take it fully looking forward to that day when we see the placemat set before us. And you know the scriptures tell us that there's going to be a name placed for us in heaven. There's going to be a book Right? The Lamb's Book of Life, and our name can be found in that book. And when the roll is called up yonder, the question is, will you be there? Will you hear your name read out of the Lamb's Book of Life? Or will it be read out of the other books, plural, that the Revelation talks about? Is there a seat at the table in God's kingdom for you with the feast prepared for us to feast in fellowship with the Lord or not? So before we partake in the Lord's Supper, every head bowed and every eye closed, let me plead to you one more time. I've shared it with you in the Scriptures, and I firmly believe a pastor saves no man, no woman, no child, but the Word of God does. The Word of God brings conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, and you know right where you sit, be it at home watching me on your sofa, at your dining room table, or FaceTiming me or looking at it in a car while you're driving right now, or sitting here in a pew. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt, that there's a place prepared for you in heaven? There's a table set just for you, and that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that that's your prayer. I pray that you have that assurance of your faith in Christ Jesus, that yet what we don't see in person, we have faith to know it will come true. If that's you today and you don't know that, the Bible is very clear. Repent of your sins and be baptized, as Peter preached the great penance, the great sermon at Pentecost. If I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that he was raised from the dead, then I will be saved. For it's by faith and faith alone, not by works. It's a gift of God, lest no man shall boast. If that's you today and you don't know whether or not you are saved, Please follow up with us after this service. I'd love to counsel with you and lead you to that understanding. And church, how about you? Are we living a life that exemplifies the Messiah? A hopeful expectation of his return. I pray that it is. So Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And I pray now that as your word has been proclaimed, as your truth has been expounded upon, as edification has taken place for this body of Christ. Lord, I pray that your truth would convict the hearts of those unsaved. Lord, that it would comfort those who are challenged in our walk with you today. And Father, I pray that it would challenge those of us who think we've become comfortable in the routine things of your holiness and your righteousness. Father, I pray today that any, every ear and every heart that has heard your word would submit itself to your salvation, to your glory. We thank you now as we enter into this time of the Lord's Supper, Father, prepare our hearts as we begin this process of self-examination. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to raise your hand if you have not received the elements. One of our deacons will provide that to you if you'll just keep your hand up in the air, and uh, we'll be going around and, and getting those elements to you in just a moment. If you have one of these, I want you to notice just in way of instruction for the way we partake in the Lord's Supper right now due to COVID and other concerns for sanitation and trying to keep us as clean as we can. Uh, you'll notice there's two sides to the cup. There's a tab that you can pull. I would highly recommend you don't pull them both at the same time. Just, just a little word of caution from a lesson I learned, right? Uh, we'll start with the bread on one side and then, then the juice that will represent the Lord's blood on the other. 
Uh, so as that's happening, our pianist is going to play, and I would invite you to partake as Paul called us to do before we partake in the Lord's Supper. We practice open communion here. That means that if you are a member of the body of Christ, that you have had a profession of faith, that you've been baptized by the waters uh, of, of what the gospel commands us to do, uh, you are a brother and sister in Jesus, and we welcome you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. If you're not saved and you don't have a relationship with Christ right now, um, God bless you for being here, but we ask that you do not partake in the Lord's Supper, please, uh, as we are obedient to the Lord's command and what he gave us instruction to do. So our pianist is going to play, and I'd invite you to take a few moments to examine your own heart before the Lord, and if there's something that you need to repent of before we partake, we'd like to give you that opportunity right now. So please take a few moments and do that very thing. turn to our scriptures again. Paul gives us the understanding as we have read once before, but let me read it again for our edification today. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray together over the partaking of the Lord's bread. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for the bread that you have given, the body that was broken. And Father, as your people, as your sheep, as your church, as your bride, we are grateful for all that you have done to bring salvation to mankind. Father, we thank you for those that have placed their trust and faith in Christ Jesus, and we pray that we will indeed be found faithful upon your return. Thank you for the body that was broken for me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Partake. Paul goes on to tell us that in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. The Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. We thank you for the reminder of this new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus, a covenant that will be fulfilled one day when you return and call us to be with you. Father, we thank you for the blood that cleanses all sin, makes it white as wool, white as snow. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Partake. Paul closes out by saying that for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to invite our, one of our deacons, Brother James Dick, to come and close us in service today. And what a blessing we have to gather to be the body of Christ. And we get to walk out those doors knowing that we're as holy and as righteous in this very moment. And when you deal with your waiter today at lunch, tip her like you're a child of the God, amen? Kingdom of God, amen? Love on her, pray for her. Brother, why don't you close us today? Thank you. Let's bow our heads, please. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for what this service means, Lord. 
if you really stop and think about it, it's awesome. It really is. Lord, we thank you for allowing us. Lord, I, I come to you and asking that as each and every one leaves here today, Lord, I pray that you just keep them safe until they reach their homes and watch over them this week and as life goes on. Father, we ask all of this in your gracious and holy name. Amen.